Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Psalm 54 is where we'll be, so if you want to go ahead and turn there this evening. Uh, Seven verses, kind of a shorter psalm, but uh, a really interesting one. And so, uh, still looking at the same theme here, moving from fear to faith. uh, And looking at that uh, overall theme here, we're going to see that tonight. We're going to see David uh, is the the, uh, author, the the composer, I guess you could say too, since it's musical, uh, of this uh, psalm. And uh, there's actually a specific sort of background to this one that we can read in a different part of the Old Testament, and we're not going to do that tonight, but I would encourage everyone, if you want to look a little bit more about Psalm 54, just um, sometime on your own, turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, and that gives you the background story. I'll give you a little bit of an overview of it, but go ahead and read that sometime uh, on your own, because that's the circumstances that led David to writing Psalm 54 uh, uh, in his life. And so basically here again, we find David uh, in a a situation where he's on the run from Saul. He is uh, kind of in a a bad place there. We're going to see in just a minute that he's been betrayed a couple of times, or he will be uh, there. Uh, and so as, Saul, or excuse me, as David is on the run from Saul, he comes across a city, and I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, it looks like it is Keilah would be the name of the city. But this is a city of Israelites. It's a city that's close to the border of the Philistines and different things, and he's out there and he's running. Uh, and what he finds out, is if, if you read in 1 Samuel 23, is that uh, the Philistines were particularly uh, attacking this city in this way. Uh, when the Israelites would go out to harvest the wheat or the grain or whatever they were doing, um, the Philistines were watching them. And they would harvest their grain, and then they would go through the whole process of threshing it, separating the good wheat from the bad pieces of stalk and that thing. And when all the work was done, then the Philistines would come at once and attack the city and steal all the grain. You know, they're getting all this stuff for free without having to do the work, basically. Uh, and so David, and I want to mention this too, if you were to read Psalm, or excuse me, in, in, in Samuel, uh, you would notice that David, from the very first verse of chapter 23, is in continual prayer with God. That's going to be key for our psalm tonight. Okay? Because as he comes to this city, he prays to God and says, Should I help this city or not? Should I stop here and fight the Philistines? And the answer to the prayer is yes. God says, go ahead, I've delivered the Philistines into your hand. Go and fight them and help this city. And so he does, him and his men. He's got 600 men with him or so. And they go and they help the city out, defeat the Philistines. uh, And then he hides in the city for a little while. Well, something kind of comes up as you're reading through there. And and, uh, the men, I guess, become edgy or David gets a little nervous. And so he prays to God again. He says, will the men of this city, will they tell Saul that I'm here? If Saul was to come knocking... Would they say, Am I, you know, he's here? And the answer from God is yes, they probably would, so you need to leave. So he does. So he leaves the city and goes out to the wilderness of Ziph. All right, and that's where we kind of pick up here. In your, in your superscript above Psalm 54, if you have those in your Bible, it may say something about when the Zithims or the Ziphites, it may say that, uh, uh, told Saul where David was. And that's exactly what happened. 
David left the city after helping them and being told by God that, hey, they're probably going to tell on you if they had a chance. Okay, that's nice, right? My own countrymen betraying me. Okay, uh, and then he prays again and he goes out and hides in the wilderness. And for no reason, they're unprovoked. David doesn't have any quarrel with the Ziphites, the Ziphims. It says it both ways in, in, in the Bible. He doesn't have any quarrel. He doesn't do anything to hurt them. They just go and preemptively or presumptively or whatever the word is, tell Saul, hey, David's over there in the woods. That's where he is. If you want him, go get him. Maybe they were looking for political favor. Maybe they were looking for special treatment. Who knows? But they told him that's where he's at. And so now here David is in a position where he is basically betrayed twice. Now the, the people of the city never actually told Saul anything. Uh, they didn't get an opportunity to. But the Ziphims betrayed him. His own people betrayed him. Uh, and so he is in a very uh, hard place here as we find him writing this psalm. We're going to look at a couple of things tonight. We're going to write, look at his plea. The first part of the psalm is a prayer to God. And then he takes a pause right in the middle. The word selah that we're um, a little familiar with and uh, in the middle of the psalm. And then his praise as his attitude changes completely in verses 4 to 7. But I want to point out two more things that are in the superscript, and we'll move on. It says, first of all, Neganoth. And I know that's something that uh, Pastor Jason, I'm sure, has talked about before. Uh, but it's just an instrument, a stringed instrument of Jewish uh, origin. And so it's just something there that he would have used. It's an instrument to use to play the song on. And then you also see mashil or maskil uh, there, that other word. Uh, and that means a teaching Psalm. There's going to be a point to David writing this. There's going to be a lesson for us to learn from this. And teaching uh, through music is actually a really good way of learning something. Uh, I'll share this with you. When I used to teach uh, in school in history, of course, I used music as a band teacher and a choir teacher, obviously. But as a history teacher, I would teach the kids songs sometimes to help them memorize states and capitals and presidents in order and that kind of thing. And we do that with young children, don't we? With very young children, we teach them a lot through songs, either the ABC song or Jesus Loves Me, This I Know or other types of songs. We teach them basic truths because it helps retain better. But it's actually a biblical principle we find in Colossians 3.16. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It helps us to uh, learn the information and to memorize it and to keep it. You know, How many of you in here tonight could say, I remember a song that I was taught when I was a child or a young person in school or in Sunday school or a one or something? Yeah, we all have some child song that we know. Uh, from that time. And so it's a very good way for us to do that. And so David is giving instruction here through music for future generations. There's always application to be made from everything. And so we are going to see some different ways that hopefully this will apply to, apply to our lives. Ultimately, um, one of the commentators I was reading this week looked at this psalm and said this could be looked at as a messianic psalm as well, uh, knowing that a lot of this, uh, as we're going to see through here, does reflect on Christ and does reflect on things that he suffered and endured while he was on earth. But let's begin reading it, Psalm 54, and we'll look at it in detail. It says, Save me, O God, by thy name. Judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them, Selah. Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he hath delivered me out of all trouble. Mine eye hath seen his desire upon mine enemies. Let's pray together quickly. 
God, we thank you for this opportunity again to look into your word now, and I pray that you'd help us to quiet our hearts and focus our minds, God, on what you have for us this evening. And we do pray also for the young people, uh, the children and the teens that are both meeting in other parts of our uh, building tonight, that you would be with them and their leaders, giving them instruction and helping them to learn the things that are being taught to them as well. We thank you for that, and let me pray. Amen. Alrighty, so we first of all start with David's plea, and that's going to encompass Psalm 54, 1 through 3a is what I'm calling it, but we're going to stop just before the word Selah in verse 3. David begins with a confession of need. Look back at verse number 1 again. Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. A confession of need. David opens this psalm by acknowledging his need and that only God can save him. We sang some songs about that tonight. And he's already uh, been dependent on God, as, as I uh, was talking about in the, in the backstory in 1 Samuel 23 about David. He'd already been in prayer. And I wanted you to remember that because this is very important for us. A lot of times we, we get ahead of ourselves or we try to do things before we pray, but really prayer, a continual prayer is where we should be in our lives. So David was in a continual prayer. He was already in contact with God, and now that this situation has come up, he is declaring his continued need for that. Now, specifically in this verse, he evokes the name of God. He says, Save me, O God, by thy name. And that's very important. It's a very important part of this psalm, because David is not saying, Save me, O God, because all this stuff's going on, and I need some rest. It's really uncomfortable for me right now, and I just need just some relief. Now, he's probably thinking that. He probably would, would want that. That would certainly be part of the answer to prayer, you know. Uh, uh, but, but he says, I want you to save me by your name's sake. God's name is connected to a lot of things, or, his, or a lot of things are connected to God's name is the better way to say it. Holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, love, grace. Uh, so many attributes are connected to God's name. And here it is God's honor and power that David is, is asking, by your namesake, for your honor and power, uh, save me, O God. David knows that a failure in this area would bring dishonor to both of those things. And God wants, or, or David is calling for that to be the reason why God saves him. He's calling on him to do something that only God can do. Isaiah 48.11 says this. It's a very important principle for us to learn. For mine own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. David being saved from this particular situation can only be attributed to God. And that is what he's calling on. Since God is unchanging, God cannot change. He is unchanging. He knows his prayer is on solid ground. And so he's going to act to save. He is, he is uh, confident that God will not allow his name to fall to the ground. And therefore he is praying in full confidence that his name uh, will be glorified and that his prayer will be answered. And verse 2 kind of connects to verse 1 in a couple of ways too. And we'll look there together. Verse number 2. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of, our of my mouth. And so David now is saying, hey, hear my prayer, God. Okay. Now, we know that today here uh, our prayers are heard by God. We have Jesus Christ uh, as our, as our uh, advocate praying uh, there before the, with the Father uh, as our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We have access to the Father through the Son. Uh, if we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have those things. We have God's Word before us. 
David is praying. He knows the importance of that and, and, and being able to hear that. There's a few things in the Bible that can hinder our prayers. That's not what we're talking about tonight, so we won't go uh, take time to look at that. But he says, hear my prayer, because he knows that if God uh, didn't hear his prayer or couldn't hear his prayer, there'd be no point uh, in him praying it. But again, remembering what was going on before. He's not waiting until that desperate situation comes. And we're a lot, a lot of times we, we've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of this. You know, we come to that point where it's just the end of our rope, right? We've tried everything on our own. We've tried so many times on our own to do something, to accomplish something that's going on in our life. Trials are coming or things are happening and we're trying to fix it. And when it gets to the point where we're like, oh, I just can't, then we stop and pray. But the reality is we should be continually praying throughout our whole day, throughout our whole life, even if just a quick prayer. I was reminded of that uh, actually from a Bible study that, that uh, Megan and her, uh, some of the pastor's wives that she knows are going through, just talking about quick little prayers, just quick little prayers you know, it doesn't have to be a big elaborate thing all the time, but a quick prayer of help at the moment of need. And so when David is doing that, he's asking for God to be in, be in attention to that and, and focusing and hearing that, but he's been in communication with the Father already uh, in his other prayers. And here's the other part that David is saying in verse 2. Give ear to the words of my mouth. It's similar to Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. And then going back up to verse 1, he says, Judge me by thy strength. David is saying, you know, I know that your name will be glorified, God. I know that because of your name you won't uh, allow this evil to happen, or you will protect me, you will save me. And then he says, My cause is also righteous. Judge the cause that I'm in and know that I haven't done anything wrong, that I am pure before you right now, and answer the prayer that I'm giving you this today. And that's what's going on. Our prayer, our, our hearts need to be right before God, too, as we come before Him. Um, David's described as a man after God's own heart. You know, one of the things that's different about him uh, in, in the uh, records of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and all those ones that talk about the history of Israel, when he's confronted with a problem, he repents. You know? It may take a little while for him, but he repents. He doesn't do what other kings did. Other kings, we read about them, a prophet comes and says, you've done something wrong, and what does the king do? Tries to kill the prophet, or, or does kill the prophet in some cases, you know, uh, or just doesn't listen to him anymore. David listens to God. David uh, repents. And so he's coming before God and says, this cause is righteous and just. My heart is pure before you. Hear my prayer, God. And this isn't David demanding. This is important to understand, too. He's not demanding something of God as if David is the boss, you know. And he's not commanding God as if, they, as if God was David's servant. He is saying in a confident prayer that because of his name, because of God's name, and because of his cause being right, that the Lord would hear his prayer and answer it. And he's showing faith through these first two verses in his prayer already. It's important to remember that as well. We can, we can actually pray in the same way, confidently in faith before God when our, when our hearts are right and we're praying in God's name for His will, for His name's sake. But I think David, like most of us, as he comes into verse 3, begins to feel the overwhelming weight of everything that's going on. You know? We've, we've, we've been in those places too sometimes, I think, haven't we? Where just so many things are going on in our life around us, and it feels very overwhelming, whether it's big things that we feel like we have no control over, and we won't mention any tonight, but there's a lot that come to my mind right now. 
overwhelming big things that are going on in our country and in our world we feel like we have no control over whatsoever. We don't know what to do. There's little things that come into our lives that are specific to us and situations that we may be in. And he begins to be overwhelmed. Look at verse 3. It says, For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. David here has a very specific thing that he is talking about. And he pauses because he's overwhelmed. Now the strangers. When the strangers for David were the, were the Ziphims or the Ziphites, whichever way that it is there. Thus those people that had no quarrel with David, they had no cause for what they did, they had no reason, David didn't offend them in any way. And yet they went out on their own and said, hey, Saul, he's over there in the woods. I mean, if you read in, if you do read, and I do encourage you to do it, in, in, in 1 Samuel 23, it literally, David is in a wood, a wooded area in the wilderness. He said he's over there in the woods. That's where he's hiding. So the strangers are the Ziphims, the ones who betrayed David. That's a, that's a common theme. Paul had some troubles too. I was looking at this verse, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul's going through a long list of things. This is kind of in the middle of things that he's talking about. But he says this, In journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, and here it is, in perils by my own countrymen, perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. He had problems, too, of different things that were going on. People who had no reason, necessarily, to get after him or to do something. Everywhere Paul went, he had Jews that would come and try to uh, mess up the work that he was doing. Jesus, too, had that. John 1.11. He came into his own, and his own received him not. And oftentimes we find that. We find these big situations that are overwhelming. Uncontrollable things in our life, things that are happening maybe on a national level or a state level. And we feel like, why does it feel like everyone is against the Bible right now? Why does it feel like everyone's against Christianity right now? We didn't do anything to hurt you. We're overwhelmed sometimes by that. We have strangers in our lives. We have things that are closer to home, maybe, too. We get hurt by people. And then he, then he has oppressors. Oppressors. The strangers are risen up against me. Oppressors seek after my soul. Of course, in this case, he's talking about Saul. Saul was specifically targeting David. And Jesus had the Jewish authorities. And there are people in this world today that are purposely seeking harm for those who are believers. I thought about that this week as well as some things are going on. Oppressors. Maybe there's people that you are in direct contact with and they're, they're kind of hard to work with or they're hard because they don't believe in Christianity. They're not difficult in any other way, maybe. They just don't like Christianity. Maybe they're not nice to you because they know you go to church. I don't know. I think we're a little bit beyond some of that stuff as adults, maybe, than, than, than uh, you know, younger people, but maybe not. And so there are people that are deliberately out there uh, trying to do that. David comes to a conclusion, though, with this. The strangers are risen up. The oppressors are seeking for him. Here's his conclusion about them, though. They have not set God before them. They've not set God before them. The strangers and the oppressors, they don't know God. If, you're, if your Bible is, is this way, 
you may be able to look across the page or back one page and, and, and see Psalm 53 that Pastor Jason went through a couple weeks back. And right there at the beginning, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And here we have David again saying, you know, the reason that this stuff is going on is because they haven't set God before them. They'd, because if they had, if they knew who God really was, they'd do the same thing that we do and they would fall before Him in worship. They would accept Him as their Savior. They would repent of their sin if they really knew who God was. So they don't know who God is. They're not believers. They're atheists. And those trials come in our lives sometimes from that and we feel overwhelmed. You don't have to raise your hand or anything, but has there been a time in your life where you've just been so overwhelmed and you've been in the middle of prayer or in the middle of something and you just had to stop? You just had to stop because you were thinking about it and it was so overwhelming to you, you couldn't even function anymore. I feel like that's probably where David is right here. He's thinking about the fact that he's running. He helped some people out in a city and then God told him through prayer that, hey, you know, they're probably going to tell, tell Saul if they had an opportunity, you should leave the city. He thought he had maybe some refuge, maybe some protection. And then people do actually betray him. He's overwhelmed and he just stops. And he has this pause. Let me tell you this real quickly before we move on. We will have trials in our life. And it's, it's hard. It doesn't make it any easier to know that. But here's four things from Charles Spurgeon. I'll give them to you quickly that are good about the trials that come in our life. First of all, they remind us of who God is. That's important for us. We can remember God. We can remember His attributes. We can remember who He is in our lives. We see Him work, and it reminds us of who God is in our lives. Trials can also remind us of past blessings. There may be something that happened to you many years ago or happened in your family many years ago, and God answered that prayer, and it was a trial but now you look back on it and see how God worked through that trial and He encourages you that in this trial that's right now, God can still work. God can remind you who it is and it reminds you of the past blessings. Here's one that's not always easy to hear, but it's important for us. It exercises our faith. You know, exercise for the body helps us tone our muscles and build our muscles, lift heavier weights, run faster, walk better, ride a bike better, whatever it is. When we exercise, it allows us to do that better than before. When we use our faith, when we're in these trials and our faith is exercised by them, our faith becomes stronger in God and our faith grows in God. And the next time something comes along, our faith is stronger than it was before. Think about Abraham's life. Abraham didn't get the message right away from God that says, you're going to have a son and you need to sacrifice him on a mountain. The very first thing that Abraham was told was, leave your hometown and go to a place I'll show you. It took all those years for Abraham to be ready to go up the mountain with Isaac. So our faith is exercised. And then finally, it brings opportunity for new praise. We praise God. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But as we have new things come in our life and God works in a different way or a new way than He did before, we have opportunity to praise Him all over again in a brand new way than we had before. So it's important for us and these trials come in to remember those things. But David here, feeling so overwhelmed, he just has a pause. And there's that word, Selah. And sometimes we skip over it and sometimes we read it and we don't know. But I think it's important for us to look at it. In a musical sense, it is a pause like a rest, just a break in the music. Okay, uh, So Selah is a musical pause. 
Okay? But this pause has a righteous purpose, and we're going to see that in just a minute in verse 4. Because we're going to see a word in verse 4 that I really like, and then we're going to see how the mood completely changes. So it is a musical pause. It does indicate a stop or a break. But it's also a needed pause because of David being so overwhelmed and because all he could do was stop and be still. And we've mentioned that already, that sometimes we have that same thing. And when we're in a position of that, we also need to do the same thing. Just stop. Sometimes it's good for us to just stop. Just stop and rest. And maybe, maybe you've had that opportunity in these past few months, even though there's a lot going on, maybe because there wasn't as much to do outside of the home as there was before, maybe you've had an opportunity to just have a pause, a break, a time where you just sat and were with your family or alone with God or praying and you've had that opportunity. We need to do that as well. We need to have those times. Because here's what happens in those times. The very next thing that David does in verse 4, he's got his eyes in the right place. Before verse 4, his eyes were fixed out here in front of him. And he saw all of his enemies. And he saw all of his problems. But after Selah, his eyes are up. And he's got his focus back on God. And that's where our focus needs to be as well. So it's a needed pause. It's also a commanded pause. God gives us other times. Psalm 104, or excuse me, 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face evermore. When we come to those pauses, it's because God wants us to seek His face and turn our eyes to His face rather to the problems in front of us. 2 Chronicles 16.11 is the same verse, but it has a different word at the end. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Evermore seek His face and continually seek His face. Put your gaze up where it needs to be and off the things in front of us around. Quiet your mind in a biblical way, biblically going to God and prayer and stopping and listening. It's hard for me to do. I, I, wasn't, I was debating about whether to say this or not, but it's hard for me to just sit and be still. Some other people may be the same way. If you're home alone, you've got to turn the radio on or the TV on or something because there's noise. You know, I, you know I have four kids and I love all of them and there's always activity in my house and I love it. But when I'm, if I'm ever there without them for whatever reason, sometimes they've been visiting people and I've stayed behind and they've been out of town. It's just quiet. And quiet's not always bad, but it's just quiet. <laughs> and it makes me a little nervous, Okay. Uh, but sometimes quiet's good for us, right? Yeah. Because it allows us to really focus our mind on what's important. And so that's, that's, that's one good thing about it. And you know what? There's been opportunities where as that quietness comes or as we've had opportunity, we actually can see where God is working. I'll give you an example. Like last week when we had a missionary from Romania come and talk about how God is working there. You know, God's got a big picture thing that's going on. And when we hear reports from our churches, like the one in Moldova or the one in New York, or we hear things about what God's doing around here, or if we stop and think about what God's doing in your life, we put our focus right back in, the, in that place. And it allows us to remember that God is at work. And though the overwhelming is there, God hasn't let everything go. He hasn't taken a step back and said, okay, it's yours. He's still working in the world. And that pause helps us to remember that. And then in verse 4, the mood is changing. And we have this amazing word here, behold. Behold. 
It says, Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. I went and looked at the definition for behold because I thought, man, it's such a striking word, really. But it says, Observe a thing or person, especially a remarkable or impressive one. Now, there's nothing more remarkable, amazing, awesome, impressive, overwhelming than Almighty God. And for us, behold God working and see that even whenever it seems dark and even when circumstances being what they are, that He is still in control and He's still on His throne. We stand back and wonder at who He is. We fall down and gaze. When I think about the word behold, we're not talking about a casual glance as you're riding down the road. We're not talking about just looking at something and seeing it. We're talking about a sunset over the ocean or a sunset in the mountains. Something that's awe-inspiring and you're up at a high point looking down over a valley or you look at the vastness of what God has created when you go down to the beach or something of that nature. It is awe-inspiring. It's more than just a glance. What came to my mind as I was thinking through this is the song we sing here sometimes, Behold Our God. It's a song that is, uh, it just, it always turns my attention and focus up. Because it's such a powerful song and declaration of behold our God seated on His throne. He's working. He's in control. And it brings an emotional response often. So David pauses at the end of verse 3, but when he uh, resumes, his focus is now on God. He's gazing at wonder at who God is. He remembers that the problems he has are nothing compared to the God that he serves. And he is now ready to pray in faith His mood has changed to faith from fear. It doesn't matter that the strangers are out there. It doesn't matter that the oppressors are out there. His focus is on God. Our focus can be there too, and it should be. David sees the... uh, David looks around also. Look at the last part of verse 4. Behold, God is mine helper. He's acknowledged, first of all, the most important one. But then he says this, The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. I think David's looking around there at his 600 people that, that haven't betrayed him. There's 600 people that are loyal to him, and they're running away from Saul too. They're risking their own life. They're hiding in the woods, but they're with him, and they're loyal. With them that uphold my soul. You know, God's given us an amazing thing in our church body. A group of people that uphold one another in prayer and encourage one another. A body of believers like that. We talk, we're talking on Sunday night about the armor of God, and a couple weeks ago we did the shield of faith. And those Roman soldiers linking their shields together as a wall and moving forward in the enemy, supporting one another. David is looking around and saying that. He sees God, his helper, which is the most important one, that even if those 600 men did abandon him like all the others, he still has God, which is more than everything else. But he looks around and sees that he does have people that are loyal to him as well. He just got betrayed. I'm sure that he's very happy that those people are there with him as well. Then David's confidence is restored. Verse number five. Verse number five, and I'll have to speed up here a little bit. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. Those that oppose David without cause would receive recompense and revenge. David's not going to take revenge. He's going to allow God to work and and send out uh, the punishment, the judgment against those that oppose them. Those that oppose God and those that oppose people will receive recompense for what they do. If they don't receive punishment in this life, they will in the next, which is a much worse thing than anything we can experience here. And God is going to, and 
David is going to allow God to be the one to be the judge in this case. But here's the thing. Even in this, God's glory is magnified. Even in this, because it magnifies his justice when God is a righteous judge. But it also magnifies God's grace because of the great lengths that he went to provide salvation. You know, a lot of times we say, man, how in the world does God send people to hell and all? It magnifies God's grace and his glory. And that's not why he does it. He does it because we are all sinners and deserving of that. But in that, it magnifies his grace because of the great length that he went to provide salvation for us. But this thought here should cause us to be more fervent in our witnessing and praying for those that need to be saved, knowing what the end of those who reject God is. And David continues in verse number six, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. And David's not saying here, hey, you know what? I'm choosing. It's optional. Maybe I can praise. Maybe, you know. No, David's actually saying, and it's not evident in English, but he's actually telling God what kind of praise he's going to offer. In the Old Testament, there was the free will offering or the peace offering. And that was a offering that illustrated the fellowship that God has with man or that two individuals have with each other through a sacrifice of blood animal because the two people would actually partake of eating of the animal that was sacrificed. Uh, and so uh, it, it signified fellowship through blood. And that's what we have through Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and this free will offering. That's what he says when he says, I will freely sacrifice. He's telling God the specific sacrifice he's going to give because it's restoration, because it's fellowship with God. And we have that. Twice now, <laughs> that has been the way. Jesus' sacrifice and salvation offered through him, we have fellowship with God. And it's our knowledge of God's character. And this is where the contrast in verse 5 and 6, I didn't mention that already, but that's where the contrast of David and verse 3 with the oppressors and the strangers are because they're not acknowledging God in verse 3. But he is in verse 5 and 6. And it's the knowledge of God's character that leads David to worship. I'll tell you this quickly. I had two... Two different pastors this week. I was listening to on podcast while I was running. Not talking about Psalm 54 at all. Not even talking about the same passage of Scripture. But both of them in their thing said, when you know Jesus, when you're truly saved, and when you know God's character, the automatic overflow is worship. And David here is in stark contrast to the people of verse 3 because he is acknowledging God and he sees the faithfulness of God and he sees the salvation of the Lord and the overflow of that is worship. And that's what he does. And he confidently says he will fellowship with God because he'll be saved from his enemies. And then finally in verse 7, David's prayer is answered. For he hath delivered me out of all the trouble and mine eye hath seen his desire upon mine enemies. David continues his praise, concludes his prayer. And, and the, the word there that's rendered from Hebrew into English is delivered. We have a past tense thing. My guess is when David wrote, and I'm just, this is just me thinking, okay? He wrote this before it actually happened. I think David is praying confidently and thanking God for the answer that will come that hasn't come yet. Now that's a little convicting to me. How many times do we pray with that kind of faith? We pray for prayer requests, but when we're done praying, do we have we had the attitude that it's already been answered? It's already a done deal. And we have the faith that God has already answered. David says, hey, you've delivered me. I'm already delivered out of all my trouble. And I've seen those uh, desires of the evil 
people turn to nothing, basically, is what he says. Paul Harvey used to say what? Now the rest of the story, right? This is what I think God's sovereignty is. This is, this is not... When you read towards the end of 1 Samuel 23, you know what you find? The Philistines start attacking an entirely different part of Israel. They invade an entirely different part of Israel. You know what that makes Saul have to do? He's the king still. He's got to leave David alone. A messenger comes and says, hey, they're attacking up there. And you guess what? The whole army. Now, that's not a coincidence. That's God's sovereignty. God answered David's prayer. I think, God, I think David, where he was, he saw Saul leave. He knew his prayer had been answered. Ultimately, David's prayer is answered in, in that he is delivered from Saul ultimately uh, by God and, uh, and becomes the king. But in this instance, that happens. You know, God wants us to pray with that kind of faith, I believe. And God wants us to pray and to praise the way that David does. And I think those are the applications. That's the knowledge. That's the teaching that God wants us to learn from this tonight. Pray expectantly and look up patiently and praise continuously.